Our reading is um, Romans chapter 4 from verse 1 and can be found on page 1131 of our Bibles. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised, in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing and the promise is worthless because the law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, 
it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much, Claire, and um, a very good morning to you all. It's lovely to be uh, together again and lovely to be back in Romans as well. This is a a treasure trove of truths that we've got here for this morning. But let me start by introducing you to John and Jane, just some generic names that I've used, but hopefully their stories will feel true for us. Now, John and God, they go way back, and John is very aware of his religious privileges. He's very aware that he's from a a Christian family, that he's been going to church for many years, and that he's been baptized, that he serves on lots of different teams. What's more, John feels like his life is pretty much all together, that he's a morally upright kind of guy. Because of of all this, two things happen in John's thinking. One is that he feels like he's on a higher spiritual level than others around him. That he, he's somehow better than his, than his neighbors, than new Christians in the life of the church. And so John can't help boasting a bit. Of course, not to others, but privately to himself. But the other thing that happens in John's thinking is that he's always a bit insecure always a little uneasy and never quite at peace. Because he bases his good standing with God, partly on his, on his background and partly on his achievements, he can't help but wondering, well, has he done enough? Has he slipped up one too many times? He can't help feeling a bit anxious. And so alongside his boasting, he is never quite comfortable, never fully at peace. That's John. And then there's Jane. Jane, like John, is an active member of the church. And active is the word because Jane is never at rest. Jane serves on more teams and committees than she can actually count. And she holds it as a badge of honor that most of her evenings are booked up with meetings. And in fact, Jane's Jane's thoughts are filled much, much more with what she does for the church than what Jesus has done for her. Now, John and Jane are both Christians and they're both a part of a church family. They're spiritual family. And they have brothers and sisters in this church and and churches across the world. And it raises the question, what happens to those churches that have Johns and Janes as a part of their communities, a part of their church families? Well, what we'll be seeing here this morning is that a church filled with people who are are both boastful and insecure will invariably lead to a culture of comparison, where there is a a perpetual looking down on others in an attempt to, to make yourself feel better, more secure, like we've done enough. Pride, self comparing, insecurity, restlessness. These aren't attributes that anyone wants in the life of the church. And yet, in reality, this will be a challenge that most churches will be struggling with. And that's true for the church in Rome too. 
whilst it may be some 2,000 odd years ago, the issues of pride and insecurity were as real then as they are today. So for all of us here this morning, we need to really tune in and capture again what Paul is reminding us of here in Romans. Because what we'll see here in chapter 4 is, if we take it on board, well, it's the difference between a church that is divided by boastful self-comparisons and doubt, and a church family that is united by humility and a wonderful sense of assurance. So that's, that's where I want us to get to this morning, from one to the other. Or rather, that's where Paul is taking us as we journey with him in God's word. So let me just pray for us as we dive in to Romans 4. Father God, we thank you so much for your word that despite this letter being written 2,000 years ago, it is true, it is relevant, it is alive. Your word is alive and it speaks to us today. So Father, we pray that by your spirit you'll be helping us to listen, to engage and to go from this place knowing that we can be humble and assured in Christ alone. Help us, we pray. Amen. Well, we'll come back to John and Jane a little bit later, but it's clear that the two of them have forgotten what we've been thinking about so far in our series in Romans. Over the past three chapters of Paul's letter to the Christian believers in Rome, we've seen that our natural human condition is to rebel against God. But we're caught in that downward spiral, further and further away from God. And whilst God's Old Testament people, Israel, had the benefit and advantage of having God's word written to them, Paul made it clear that by ourselves, no one gets close to living God's perfect holy standard. Rob mentioned it already, but we read uh, in Romans 3, if we can just have that slide up on the screen in just a moment. From Romans uh, 3, I'll start reading it for us. There is no one righteous, no, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. Which means both the religious insiders and the irreligious outsiders, well, they're equally lost by nature under sin. Everyone, absolutely everyone, has fallen short of God's perfect standard. Wonderfully, though, we began to see in chapter three, uh, chapter 3, as Rob opened that up to us, that there is hope with that wonderful phrase, but now. Having been plunged, if you like, into the darkness of the night, well, the rising of the sun is all the more bright and beautiful. And having seen just how lost we were in our sin, well, the beauty of the gospel is all the more amazing. But now, now we can be made right with God through Jesus. That was the first three chapters of Romans so far that Paul summarizes at the end of chapter 3 in verse 28 saying that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And that, that wonderful truth was one that the reformers of the Reformation some 500 years ago under people like Martin Luther, they rediscovered this truth, what it means to be saved by grace alone, through faith alone. And it was through pointing people to these truths in Romans that, well, that foundational truths were established in the life of the church. And these were known as the solas. These were known as the solas, where in these things solely, 
do we find justification? That a person is justified by grace alone through faith alone. And it was in this that the heart of the Christian faith was was finally taken back to its roots, to the truth of the gospel. And we can break down this big kind of Christian lingo word of justification by thinking about it like this. We are justified, and that helps us to think about, well, it's just if I'd never sinned. Because of Jesus, it's just if I'd never sinned. We are justified. That's its meaning. And that's our our legal standing with God. Everything that we have ever thought, everything that we had ever done and said, well, it's all taken care of. It's done. It's gone. Justification by grace alone through faith alone. But having dropped this this bombshell of a truth in chapter 3, Paul then takes us into chapter 4 and starts to unpack the pastoral implications for us, and they're huge. Such Such a big statement is it that Paul dedicates a whole chapter to helping us think through exactly what it means for you and I. That kind of big, so what question. What difference does this make to me? So let's have a look at chapter 4, and with Paul, we'll look to unpack those implications for us in light of the key truth of justification by grace alone through faith alone. The first, so what, actually flows out of the end of chapter 3, where Paul is addressing this question of boasting, boasting. And this runs into chapter 4, where Paul applies the question to perhaps the greatest of Israel's uh, figures in history. He addresses it to Abraham. Abraham was an absolute legend, a hero, the father figure and ancestor to God's people. If anyone, if anyone had a reason to boast, it was Abraham. And so he's the perfect example for Paul to use. Verse 2 asks the question, was Abraham, the powerful patriarch that he was, justified by works? Did he have something to boast about? The response Absolutely not. And Paul takes us back to Genesis to see the reality of Abraham's situation. Let me read this. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham's works, what he did, had nothing to do with his right standing with God. That The father figure to God's people was justified because he simply believed the promise given to him by God. And you may remember that the promise that Abraham received back in Genesis, that despite his old age, Abraham would go on to have a child, Isaac. And that wonderful promise that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars. And ultimately, we would see that, we see that it is through the line of Abraham that one amongst those descendants would be the Savior, the Messiah, Jesus And as Abraham looks into that night sky, looks into all of those stars, he hears God's promise, and he believes, he trusts God. And in so doing, he looks ahead to Christ, and he places his trust in the righteousness that he would one day offer to all of God's people. And so in in simply believing the promise of God, having faith, well, Abraham is credited with righteousness. He's credited 
with righteousness. But what does this language of a credit really mean? Well, Paul gives us an example to help us uh, understand it. And it's the difference between works that earn and gifts that are given. I've, uh, I've got my checkbook here. I have to blow the dust off of it because no one uses this checks really anymore. And uh, I want us to imagine that you know, if we as a church got some contractors in and we completely redid the church, kitchens, painting, the lot, got some yeses over here, you know, wouldn't that be great, fantastic? And you know, we would have to pay for those services rendered. So you know, however many thousands of pounds that would cost, we would pay the workers because they put the work in, they get the money. It's fair, it's just. But imagine if I take this check for £100,000 and I come along and I just give it to one of you. Well, that's, that's not works and services rendered. Hand down, Julie. It's, it's, a, it's a gift given. And it's a gift simply received. And that's what Paul is talking about here. That's the difference. Imagine if you were to check your bank statement, maybe on your phone or when you get home and... And it's, it's the difference between seeing that little minus number and whatever numbers come next, and the difference between being in you know, thousands of pounds in credit, from the red to the black. And it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, credited here doesn't mean a change in character, but a change in status, from, from debtor to, to millionaire, if you like. A status change. And any change in the character within Abraham, well, that comes after that status change. A change that has been given to him and not earned. So we are made right with God by grace and not by works. Even David, the great king of Israel, well, he's brought in as well by Paul to help make the case. He quotes Psalm 32, and again, we've heard this already, haven't we? Where David speaks of how blessed the forgiven are, of how their sins are are covered over, done and dealt with. Can you hear what David is saying here? They're words of belief and not frantic, self-saving works. So with the great patriarch and the greatest king behind him, Paul can conclude that no one should boast. No one can boast. If the heroes of the faith, Abraham and David, both recognized that they were right with God because of a gift given to them, that they received by faith, and not a, not a status earned or worked for, then surely we as the church have to follow in their footsteps. Paul writes in 3, verse 27, Where then is boasting? It is excluded. In the life of the church, there is a permanent ban on boasting. Because in celebrating the gospel of grace, we are those not saved by works, but by the gift of righteousness that is given to us. It's received by faith. And in the life of the church where boasting is banned, what can spring up in its place? Well, a real sense of unity. In verses 9 to 12, we see Paul tackling the topic of circumcision. Now, not such a contentious issue in Thurnby today, but back in Rome at that point, it was a divisive issue. It's the question of who's in, who's out, who truly belongs. 
And does the outward sign of circumcision make you right with God? If so, are the Gentile, non-Jewish Christian believers in the Roman church second-class citizens, somehow inferior? You see, it's a big issue, can't we? And Paul, again, points to Abraham for an answer. He makes crystal clear that Abraham trusted and believed and was credited this righteousness all before he was circumcised. If you do the math, it's probably about 13 years before. He says that circumcision was just a sign of the reality that had already taken place. And for us, we can think of baptism, can't we? The sign and the symbol of the water doesn't make us right with God, doesn't make us better than others. It's just an outward sign of an inward reality. A pointer, if you like, to the fact that we have been saved by grace. And so for Paul, as he addresses this topic of circumcision, he is able to conclude that Abraham is not simply the father of all the circumcised, the, the Jewish believers. No, he is the father of all those who have faith. The phrase we get is, all those who follow in the footsteps of faith. And I love that phrase. It's great. And you and I here this morning, if we're following in the footsteps of faith, trusting God's promise to make us right through Jesus, then we are called children of Abraham. And in light of this, there can be no division. There is no one better than the other. There is no ethnic divide, cultural divide, age divide, no better Christians or worse Christians. We are all united through grace, through Jesus. Thinking back to John, who we started with at the beginning, and his approach to church life, driven by that sense of religious privilege, that because of his background and involvement, he is somehow better. Well, that self-comparison, that sense of worth in what we've done, well, it can be replaced by a wonderful appreciation for what Jesus has done for us. If John were to, to really realize that he is just like all the other believers around him, that he is solely saved by grace alone, then he wouldn't be so quick to look down on others, would he? He would perhaps be quicker to ask for prayer for those things that he's struggling in, quicker to help and encourage those new Christians in the life of the church. So justification in grace alone, through faith alone, means in the life of the church, self-promoting and self-comparing pride well, it's, it's re replaced by a family-uniting humility. That's the first big thing, the first big so what that Paul points us to in this passage. Self-comparing pride is replaced by family-uniting humility in light of that gift of grace. But secondly, and much more briefly, we see the next big so what that flows out of this wonderful truth. As we reflect on what it means to be justified by grace alone, through faith alone, we can appreciate that this truth speaks into our confidence and our sense of assurance. It's a big topic that we need to think about this morning. As we reflect, um, sorry, if you're like me, I think many of us will struggle with this. If you've had times in your life where perhaps you've doubted whether or not you are right with God, whether or not you're really saved. 
then I think these verses are for ye. In verse 13, Paul, Paul sticks with Abraham and highlights that this is all about the promise. He says it was not through the law that Abraham received the promise. When it comes to the law, I think we can hear law, can't we? And immediately we think, how do I measure up? I remember whilst, um, whilst growing up in our home, we had a door, and on the side of the door, we measured our height. I'm sure many of you have done the same. And at each birthday, we would, you know, Steve, age 11, and so on, and so on. And it would all be very exciting. Me and my two brothers would all be seeing who's taller, but always with the expectation of, can we measure up to our dad, who was right up at the top of the door, much, much taller. I think maybe that's how we see the law. How do we measure up? But actually, Paul says no. That's not what the law is for. It's not a measuring stick. It's actually a signpost. A signpost to help us understand where we truly are. A picture to help us get this would be to place ourselves in the countryside going for a walk. Imagine after church, you go for a walk across the fields. And as you go, you, uh, you head off the path and you trespass on someone's private land. We're in the wrong we shouldn't be there. But we're doubly guilty, doubly guilty, if we walk straight past a sign that clearly says, no trespassing. We'd be much more guilty if that were the case, wouldn't it? That's how the law functions. Without having first been saved by Jesus and the transforming work of the Holy Spirit, in this way, the law just makes us even more guilty than we were before. We cannot be saved or made right with God by measuring ourselves up according to the law. The law simply points us to the fact that we're lost, that we're guilty. Instead, instead, it's all about the promise. Verse 16, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace. God's promise to Abraham was received not by works, but by grace through faith, that key phrase again. And I think the posture of faith that Abraham models here for us isn't hands that are busy trying to clutch, trying to, to save himself, to earn merit. No, the hands that he has are open and simply receive the gift that is offered, the promise that is given. This raises the question for us, perhaps, well, if it's all about the promise and not what we do, our works, how sure is that promise? Because this is a, a big deal. We want to be sure about the promise. How trustworthy is the promise giver? Paul preempts this question for us, and he shows us that we can have full assurance in the promise, because what God says, God does. It's not a case of what God says we have to go and try and do and work our hardest to achieve. No, what God says, God does. And we can have absolute confidence in this promise because nothing can stop God from keeping his word, even death. That's what we see towards the end of this chapter in verses 17 to 19. Twice we get this reference to that which was dead. Abraham's body, as good as dead, Paul says. Sarah's womb, also dead. And yet we're told in verse 17, we have the God who gives life to the dead. What a great phrase that is. It is into this death 
and hopelessness, that God gives his promise of life, of descendants, ultimately of salvation. And even in the face of death and decay, his promise is still good. Our God is trustworthy. His promise is sure. And that is where we can place our assurance. And know that no matter how lost we are, how how bleak the situation is, or even in the face of death itself, we can know that God keeps his promise. Our salvation is secure in him and in him alone. Thinking back to Jane again, who we first met at the start, her sense of assurance was deeply rooted in her busyness, in her involvement in all those teams and committees, effectively in her work. And so she was subtly undermining God's promise that what God had done in Jesus well, it wasn't quite enough, that it needed to be topped up by her works. And of course, what happens as soon as we put the focus on ourselves, what, what we can do, then that's when the doubts arise. That's when assurance is lost. Because if it's on us, we will always fall short. And so if we're relying on what we can do, what we can offer, then we are always going to end up like Jane, wondering, have I done enough? Wondering, am I really right with God? Maybe even doubting our salvation. Here, Paul, though, he offers an alternative. Don't look within Look to God. Don't rely on your works. Rely on God's unbreakable promise. So, that's Paul's so what that we've seen here this morning. That we are justified, just if I'd never sinned. That grace and faith do make all the difference in Christ alone. Instead of of boasting in our background and in our works, which leads to that divisive self-comparing, we can humbly receive our new status given to us in Christ alone and be united together as one family. Instead of frantically working our way into acceptance and worth, we can find unbreakable, eternal assurance in God's promise. Jesus has secured our new identity and our salvation. And nothing, not even death, can take that away from us. As we go from here, where are you at this morning? Where are you at this morning? Are you still searching? Searching for that belonging, that sense of peace? Are you searching for assurance? If so, Paul says, turn to Jesus. You'll find those things in no one and nothing else. Or if you've strayed into thinking more about ourselves and and less about Jesus, if that's us, well, let's retune our hearts to fully focusing on him and on what he alone has done for us. And for all of us here at St. Luke's, we can leave with Romans 4 ringing in our ears as we see ourselves for who we truly are. Brothers, not boasters. Sisters, not self comparers, that instead of pride, we have that wonderful promise. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you so much for these wonderful and deep truths that you've shown us in Romans 4 this morning, that we, through Jesus, can be children of Abraham, children of the promise. 
Lord, by our nature, it is so easy to look to ourselves, to try and pull ourselves up, to try and be good enough for you. But Lord, thank you that your son was perfect and that he gives us his righteousness, his right standing with you. Help us to receive this freely given gift. And in receiving it, to to be united with one another in that sense of humility. Lord, we pray that you'll be transforming this church culture more and more to be those people who have a wonderful sense of assurance in Christ alone. We thank you for these truths, and we thank you for them in Jesus' name. Amen.